Amen. Please be seated. Though I can go through the order of worship that Pastor Allen had written and put in the bulletin, uh, it would be quite difficult for me to preach the sermon in a Pontier-esque fashion. Um, so I went and I uh, found an older sermon uh, that I had done in the past, and so please bear with me. The version actually might even be a different version, but that's okay. Um, let us turn in our Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 19 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And I'm also going to be preaching off my iPad since I just got a printer last night. And that's going to be also a first. So if I'm staring at something, you know the reason why. And sorry for the glare off my glasses. But here now, as I read God's holy word. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Well, our God, we pray that you would bless us now by the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, may you enliven your word, enlighten us by your word, and draw us closer to the Savior this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Christians, as saints, bought with the precious blood of Christ, we have to admit that we do not contemplate who we are in Christ enough. By Christ paying the ransom for our sins, taking our sins to himself and imputing his righteousness to us, he has brought us near to God. And that is so very important that we grasp that. But there in our lives where there are times where we get busy or the worries and the cares of this world tend to drown out the awesome truth that we have been united to Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority on heaven and on earth, our prophet, our priest, our king, our wonderful savior. And the Bible uses several metaphors describing our relationship to God and to others. It also provides stern warnings for those who continue to refuse the gospel, who continue living for themselves. Now it is evident in all his 13 epistles and 14, if you count Hebrews, I'm not going to tell you what I think about that, uh, that Paul was a prayer warrior. He offered much prayer on behalf of the saints, members of the churches he or the other apostles went about and planted. 
He often offered prayers of thanksgiving as well as prayers of intercession that they would know in their heart of hearts who they were in Christ and that they would live like they believe. Now, one of Paul's purposes in writing Ephesians was to help answer his own prayer for them, that they might know such things as what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Ephesians 1.18. Now, in the first half of chapter 2, Paul, in his excitement, has spoken of the wonderful grace of God as expressed in their personal salvation. Though this is not our sermon text, it would be beneficial that I read it to you, so bear with me. If you and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which he once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of this air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in that passage, you would notice the strong adversative conjunction in verse 4. But God, Christian, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You were once zombies. You were once a dead man walking. But God, who is rich and mercy and love and miraculously made us alive together with Christ, by his sovereign grace, he has given us a special position in him, hasn't he? This strong adversative also shows up in our sermon text today. And now Paul speaks in more corporate terms. He's, he's speaking to the church as a whole in these verses. He specifically speaks to Gentile Believers, but in our present context, we should apply it to all of those who were outside of Christ, even the Jews. It also makes clear that our condition, what our condition can be today, either outside of Christ or through and in Christ. In these verses, Paul affirms who the members of Christ's church are by using the metaphors of, number one, God's family, and number two, God's house. God's family and God's house. 
And then he goes on to describe the house's foundation. Then he goes on to describe its formation, what it is built out of, how it is built, and its function. What, what is this house used for? Well, first, all believers in Jesus Christ are members of God's household. We are all in God's family. Let us look again at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is what happened to us as a direct consequence of our being brought into union with Christ. We have been brought into a new relationship with God through Christ. First, Paul says that what is no longer the case for believers. We are no longer strangers or foreigners. We are no longer aliens. Not extraterrestrials, but... A stranger is one who is allowed to be in a country but does not have any rights except those that are granted to travelers or to tourists. If you go to another country, for example, you need to have a passport. And then you need to have a visa or a stamp or an e-visa or some way to show that that nation, that country has allowed you to be there. You need to go through customs. And then you need to be inspected to make sure you have a legal right to tour or to travel there. And your rights are limited. A foreigner, or an alien, to be more precise, is also in another country that is not his or her own. He or she is a resident alien. An alien can reside in the United States, for example, and even have the right to work if he or she is not, if he or she has an immigrant visa <laughs> or a green card. You guys know I was once an alien. I used to live in Taiwan. And then I have a, an ARC, an alien resident card. Now, aliens have more rights than tourists or strangers, but they don't have certain national rights, like, for example, the right to vote. But neither strangers nor foreigners are citizens. Nor do they have all the rights and privileges of citizens in that particular country. And now Paul, in, in great wisdom, uses these two words together to emphasize something. Because he says, outside of Christ, you were once lost in the darkness of your sins. You could come, you could not come directly to the Father because you were objects of his wrath. You were a stranger to him, but more than that, you were an object of his wrath. You cannot enjoy safety in him, nor rest in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. Because you did not have the privileges of being a citizen in God's kingdom. 
you were once lost. You were once without hope, without a future, without rights. To approach the throne of grace. And then Paul uses that strong adversative connecting word, but. And this is very important. Believer, because of Jesus, you are now fellow citizens with the saints and fellow members of the household of God. Because of God, in his amazing grace, you have been brought into his glorious kingdom. See, there's a strong contrast again between who you were outside of Jesus and where you are now trusting in Jesus. Paul says that you are fellow citizens of God's kingdom with the saints. You, along with all other believers in all time, in all space, are fellow citizens of heaven. On a show, just a short sojourn here on earth. And you now have all the rights and privileges afforded you by virtue of being united to Jesus Christ through faith. The faith given to you freely by God himself as a gift. And as a citizen of the kingdom of God, you are protected by him. You are afforded that protection and he protects you. You are cared for by him. Now, you're not a recipient of earthly welfare because you have far much more, far much better, a far much better heavenly welfare plan. You are safe from God's wrath and his curse now. And by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, you are members of the household of God. And you enjoy all that sense of belonging to God. You are now rightly called brother and sister by Christ himself, as well as other believers. That is one thing when I came here two months ago, or however months ago, in June, that I saw about each of you. That sharing in that bond of fellowship, partakers in that fellowship in Christ, because you have it in yourself, because you're just a nice, cool person? No. But because of those rights and the privileges given to you by the Heavenly Father himself. You have been given the spirit of adoption by which you can freely call God Father. You have the privilege of being sons and daughters of God, fellow heirs with Christ, knowing this amazing truth, brothers and sisters, it doesn't stop there. Remember we read, Pastor Allen gave us that scripture to read about faith without works. You need to act accordingly. If, if God calls you his son or his daughter and you believe that you are a son or daughter of God, 
a fellow heir with Christ, then you need to act accordingly. You see, God has certain laws which govern his kingdom. He has his moral law, the Ten Commandments, and it is still in full effect because the whole of his law and the whole of his law is summed up in the two greatest commandments in the New Testament. Love God and love others. And God has gifted you with his grace so that you can show that grace to other members of his household. Learn how to love one another. Learn how to forgive each other. Learn how to encourage one another in the Lord. So that's the first thing I think this passage shows us. We are no longer believers. We are no longer strangers of God. But we are his friends. We are his sons. We are his daughters. Secondly, all Christians are part of God's house. We're all part of God's house. The scripture says that we are, collectively, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, here in verses 20 through 22, it says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul changes the metaphor in these verses to one of a temple. Because all true Christians together are, like I just said, the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's dwelling place. It is because we are God's holy dwelling place that we have been brought into this new relationship. We have a privileged position in God's building and temple, the place where he dwells by his spirit. And Paul Paul describes this temple from the ground up, so to speak, from its foundation to its construction, to its purpose. And it's important that we discuss these as we are all part of, the, part of this. We are in God's family because we are God's dwelling place. And the reason we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household is because we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, as the scripture says. And this was nothing that we did or could have done on our own. God did it. He gave us this new relationship, and he placed us where we are now in this building. Paul develops the image here. He speaks of the foundation and the cornerstone of the building, the structure as a whole and its individual stones 
he speaks of, quote, its cohesion and growth, its present function, and its future destiny. Christian, you are an integral part of this new building. God has already set you as a living stone on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, the foundation is the most vital part of the entire structure. If you have a weak foundation and the hurricane comes, the whole structure will be unstable and will collapse. Now, the Greek word for foundation speaks of the beginnings of something. That is, is the beginnings of something that is coming into being. And it is synonymous with the Greek word for foundation. And in Ephesians 1.4, when Paul says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he speaks of it as the beginning of the world. And it says that we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Two separate groups that are more or less distinct, but are treated together to make a point. Now, if you come from another kind of a church, you're like, yeah, I can't wait to hear about the apostles and the prophets. In Revelation, in Revelation 21, 14, John says that the apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel make up the foundation of the new Jerusalem. But who exactly are the apostles and the prophets here? An apostle was one who was called and sent out on a mission with the fully delegated authority of Jesus Christ. And the original 12 apostles from whom their master and Lord Jesus were sent out to minister. They received the revelation of God through the Holy Spirit to understand the mystery of Christ. And their task was to speak the word, to proclaim Christ, to preach the gospel. And they did so verbally. And as you see, examples of that in the book of Acts, for example, and in their writings in Scripture. Those inspired ones being included in our Bible today. Now in the Bible, there are three categories or kinds of apostles mentioned. There are the original 12 disciples who had seen Jesus, who had been with Jesus in his ministry and who had personally seen his resurrection. Then there was Paul, who had a special circumstance where he meets Christ on the road to Damascus, and his life was changed forever. And he was commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Then there are those mentioned in Ephesians 4.11, who were given the gift of apostleship. Now, Paul is probably, in the original context, speaking not of the first or the second or the third, but all three because they are all commissioned with specific tasks of proclaiming with authority the message, again orally and written, to establish and to build up God's church. But more specifically, Paul is referring to the 12 
plus Paul because of their personal encounter with Jesus. The prophets Paul mentions here in the New Te- are the New Testament prophets. Paul mentions the prophets elsewhere who are also listed with other gifts of the church. New Testament prophets were gifted by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy for the purpose of edification, for comfort, and for encouragement. But they also had another function. To understand and communicate the mysteries and revelation of God to the church. And since the canon of Scripture was incomplete, there was no real need for the prophets to receive special revelation from God to complete what was needed for faith in life, that every person would have what was needed to be presented perfect before God on the last day. Because uh, that now, uh, back then, the prophets were still performing their function, and then we have now the closed canon. So together with the apostles, prophets were the first authoritative recipients and proclaimers of God's revelation in Christ. They had overlapping functions, but for Paul to say that they were, we were built upon the apostles and prophets means that our membership with the saints, God's people, rest on the normative teaching that arises from divine revelation. It rests upon the scriptures. The scriptures were written by the apostles and the prophets. When Jesus said that Peter is the rock and his church would be built on that rock, he meant that his church would be built on the revelation which came from God, which we now have in his holy inspired word. And then Paul zeroes in even more on what is even more significant. We have been built on Christ alone. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The main stone of the foundation of the apostles and prophets is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself. He is the chief cornerstone he has preeminence all around the foundation and the the foundation of all the stones of the walls and their parts of the building were all determined by Jesus who is the chief cornerstone now it is likely that when paul wrote this he had isaiah 28:16 in mind which says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Christ is the focal and beginning point of the church and the apostles and the prophets and all they preached and taught must align with him. He was the first stone laid. You see, the builder would have to be extremely carefully careful to properly set this stone. It was that stone, the cornerstone, by which every other stone in the foundation and in the actual structure of the building would be measured. <clears throat> the apostles and the prophets and the church members 
must all be in conformity with Christ, the chief cornerstone. It is crucial that every other stone in the foundation and the structure be in line with this. The apostles and the prophets, as well as all the believers, must be in line with the cornerstone because we all must be measured with Christ. In this life of sanctification, the Holy Spirit helps us as we try to order our lives to be in line with him. As a church, we strive for our teachings to be more and more in line with him. And he continues in verse 21, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul continues this metaphor of the building by talking about how it is constructed. It is Christ and only in Christ that the whole entire house is being founded, including the foundation and the superstructure, the whole thing. And he's talking about one single structure on one single foundation. That means that every local congregation, every presbytery, every synod, every denomination which is faithful to God's word around the world makes up this building. Though we may have our distinctives, that does not make us or any other congregation the only dwelling place for God. Not one denomination can be singled out as being the true church. Remember the prerequisite for being a true church of our Lord is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as our chief cornerstone. And none of this, none of us, none of our churches, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ has not been completed. The building is still in the process of construction. Remember, the building of which Paul speaks is not inanimate, but it is a living and growing organism. Paul continues in the statement about God's dwelling place, that it is being fitted together and that it grows. Now, my dad was a contractor, and in today's construction industry, the bricks or the stones of the building do not need to be fit exactly fitted together to the T, because masons have a wonderful substance now called mortar. You mix that stuff together and then you use it to fill all the gaps and the holes. And that mortar is so strong and it lasts a long time. But in ancient days, the stones had to be fit together just right. So there was, there was an, uh, it had to be fit together just right. And so there was an elaborate process of cutting and smoothing the stones in order for them to fit exactly next to each other, just right to support that structure. Now, before our conversion, we were at enmity with God. Our value system was different than that of other than, than that of Christians. We had a different worldview. We lived for ourselves. We loved ourselves. We did what benefited ourselves. But now the gracious God has included us in his family. 
and made us part of this building. And we are to live it in unity with one another. We, the wall of separation that has been torn down, and we need each other. We need each other's fellowship as part of God's building, as, as part of being recipients of his love and his grace. We need to be carefully fitted together. That's how we grow. God desires to bring us into unity so that corporate growth in Christ can occur. That means within our congregation, that means within our presbytery, that means within our denomination, and without, beyond the bounds of our denomination. Paul says that this whole building grows into the temple in the Lord, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This building is growing into a place where God dwells. At the time in Ephesus and in surrounding areas, there were temples, which were dedicated to certain pagan gods and goddesses. That was where the gods were. If you wanted to find a specific god or goddess dedicated to a specific realm, you would go to that specific temple. So if you were having trouble with fertility, for example, you would go to the temple of Artemis. Now, this building that Paul is talking about is growing up into a holy temple, consecrated and set apart for God's use. And this holy temple is in the Lord. This building, which is a new person, Christian, you are a new creation. This is growing into the holy temple in Christ. And we are growing into a holy temple. When God called us and justified us, he enlisted us into the lifetime process of sanctification in which, by his grace, he is conforming us more and more and more into the image of Christ, and the church collectively is the place where God dwells. Verse 22 parallels verse 21. It says, In whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul discusses the purpose or function of the building, and we are the habitation of God. Believers, you are an inherent part of God's building, and you are being fitted together. You are being united together, and this is all God's gracious activity. It's what God has done, and it's what God continues to do by his Spirit. Remember, you were once separated from Jesus. You were outside of God's covenant community. You were without God and you had no hope and you had no joy. But God is building you together into his very own dwelling place. And this is God's desire to dwell in, with, and amongst his people. That is why he had them build a tabernacle. That is why Later, he had them build the temple. And now Christ tabernacles amongst us. And this dwelling place is firmly rooted in Christ, the chief cornerstone. 
God's inhabitants in the body of believers is permanent and is going to endure till the end because it is established in the Spirit. God's dwelling place in the church, in his holy temple, is that which is settled and abiding in the person of the Holy Spirit. God resides with us and in us by his Spirit. Without Christ, we were strangers and foreigners. We were not included together with God's chosen covenant people. But in Christ, we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are now members of God's household. He provided for family. And we are now part of the holy temple, God's dwelling place through his spirit. I can't say it enough. You have to understand that outside of Christ, you are still an alien and a stranger. And you will enjoy no participation in the covenants and promises that God has with his people today. Outside of Christ, you will have no basis for hope or joy. And you will have to go through life without God's blessing guiding you in this world. You need to understand who you have become in Christ. Only believers in Christ have become fellow citizens with the saints in God's glorious kingdom. Let's strive to live our lives accordingly. In Christ, you have become adopted into God's family. Let us strive to treat one another, even those who we don't necessarily agree with, as brothers and sisters. You need to remember that you are, that you have become the temple of God in which God dwells in his spirit. Let us be careful to take care of God's holy habitation. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the reminder of who we are in Christ, that we are indeed your sons and daughters, indeed fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We have been brought into this covenant family, one with another. Lord, we pray that you would help us to dwell together in unity. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to be an encouragement to one another that others who do not know you may see our love for one another and know that we are Christ's disciples. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.